Pray again with me, please. God of all glory and grace, we ask you to speak your truth to us. Allow me to be your humble servant. Give us all ears to listen well. Give us minds to understand. Give us hearts that are submissive and growing in affection for you, and give us hands and feet that are ready to obey. We love you and we thank you for your work in us and your willingness to use us. Because of Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. So if you're visiting with us, you are jumping into the middle of a series in Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. Our backbone is sequential exposition of the biblical text. We figured that if that's how it was written and intended to be read, that's how we should teach it. And so that's what we primarily emphasize here. You're jumping into, not only that, but you're coming into Acts 15 in a section that we have already been dealing with for a little bit. There's a gathering in Jerusalem and a decision in Acts 15 that isn't precisely like the future ecumenical councils, and those councils would help clarify and defend foundational biblical doctrines down through the centuries of the church, but this council is no doubt a prototype for those councils. This first foundational defense is over how Gentiles are included in God's people. And the conclusion is made clear that it's not by circumcision or any other works of the law, but by grace through faith in Jesus, as it is for both Jew and Gentile. So as we put ourselves back into this particular time and this particular situation, it's difficult to overstate just how consequential this resolution was for the early church and for future generations of Christians. Oh, here's an overview of where we've been in this discussion leading up to today. This is the third part. First, we described how the text shows an urgent defense of the gospel, which is why Paul and Barnabas went up from Antioch to Jerusalem. There's a defense against works-based salvation, anything other than grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Then we noticed in verses 7 through 21 that there are two conclusive arguments in the discussion. The first is from Peter, and Peter's argument mostly corresponds to this first emphasis, an urgent defense of the gospel by faith and not by works of the law. And then comes a conclusive argument from James where he reinforces this same thing by proving that it was foretold in the scripture, while also recommending they tell Gentile believers to abstain from certain behaviors, some which relate to holiness and others that could help facilitate regular fellowship with Jewish believers. The conclusion they reach, evidenced by their letter that we're looking at today, lines up consistently with this wise thinking from James. And so now we come to the decision disseminated in, in a letter form, and here's the decision they've come to. We must not compromise the gospel, put no greater burden on the Gentiles 
because Jews and Gentiles are saved by grace through faith. But there's still a wise command for holiness and a wise compromise in behavior recommended for the sake of Christian fellowship, living in harmony with the Jews in your same cities. There are synagogues in almost all of these cities, and some of them are coming to faith in Christ, and you guys are seeking to fellowship together, even in meals. And so there are recommendations accordingly. Let's read about how the message is communicated and sent out from these apostles and elders and how it is received. Acts 15, beginning in verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and elders and the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Bersabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers. With the following letter, the brothers, both the apostles and elders, to the brothers and sisters who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Speaking of Barnabas and Paul, these are men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these things, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. The way the Christian leaders handle themselves and situations matter as much as the decision they make. The way they handle themselves matters. We can learn not only from the conclusion they come to, which was largely our emphasis last week, although we'll talk about it again today, but we should also learn from the wise and clear manner in which these leaders handle the situation. Imagine if they had been callous or careless in their response to the Pharisaic Christians. Imagine if they were cavalier or uncaring in their communication with the Gentile believers. They would have done a great disservice to the truth that people needed to hear. Once they reach consensus, these leaders need to be unified and clear. The leading, the leading then of the apostles and the elders is confirmed, according to verse 22, by the whole church in Jerusalem. They're unified. But then to be clear... They send out a letter spelling out their decision, and they do so along with two trusted witnesses, a practice in the time of, coming, of having two witnesses to uh, achieve clear testimony of something. So they would send two witnesses, two messengers, two envoys to convey and reinforce the content of the letter. So I'm going to kind of focus on this in two sections this morning, and then 
uh, when, we, when we talk about the implications, we'll, we'll try to talk about the implications from this whole section of chapter 15. But first of all, there's one letter. I want to talk to you about its purpose and its message in verses 22 to 29. They send this letter out knowing their decision is going to be disseminated beyond the church, just the Antioch church that brought the matter to their attention. Specifically, it says other churches that have been planted in the Roman district of Syria and Cilicia, which may well have been established by Paul in those, do you remember those intermittent years from, from Paul's conversion and then his escape from Damascus and Jerusalem to go back up to that region to now the more recent ministry out from Antioch and their new missionary endeavors. There was a gap of, of maybe 12 and a half to 14 years, and the Apostle Paul was busy. And so there were churches planted in that area. Now, this letter goes out to all of them, but what's more, the letter's influence is likely to extend even more widely than just this single Roman district of Syria and Cilicia. So they have to be precise and intentional in the way that they communicate. Now, there's been a serious disagreement with potentially disastrous and divisive consequences. So the leaders have reached a conclusion. They must be clear. This should settle the matter, but how they go about it is also important. So to carefully observe their approach to this, let's consider the purpose and the message of the letter. I believe their purpose can be summarized in projecting unity and providing clarity. Let me give you some examples of projecting unity the, to the church, the apostles and elders together with the whole church. There's the unity of the church in Jerusalem about this matter in verse 22. There's unity in seen really plainly in the letter. Verse 23, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders are communicating this to you. It has seemed good to us, verse 25, having come to one accord. Seemed good to us having come to one accord. And then also there's the spirit-led agreement that we hear of in verse 28, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. It definitely projects unity. Does it provide clarity? They aim to be clear about whom this message is meant to encourage and instruct. To the brothers and sisters who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings, verse 23. So they're clear about who they're speaking to. They aim to be clear that, their previous, that the previous harassment that they had received did not come at their bidding, verse 24. Although we gave them no instructions, they were troubling you and unsettling you. We didn't give them instruction to do that. So they're clear about that as well. They aim to be clear that Barnabas and Paul were right Verses 25 and 26, remember that earlier in Acts 15, we learned that Paul and Barnabas had no little debate and discussion with them. And so now the letter communicates Paul and Barnabas were right. Verses 25 and 26, we've come to one accord and chosen men to go with our beloved Barnabas and Paul who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. They were right. And they aim to be clear by reinforcing the letter by word of mouth for two trusted, from two trusted witnesses. That's Judas and Silas. They'll tell you the same things by word of mouth. We'll come back to that in a minute. Now, here's a, a potential application already for you to think about. Christian leaders, in our homes especially, but you could think about this in your workplace, 
in your ministry, any place that God has given you influence to be a Christian leader. This is helpful wisdom to be unified and then to project that unity and to communicate it with careful and caring clarity. In the case of this important letter, let's be reminded that they were demonstrating unity and clarity in communicating an important message to review for us. What is this message? The message is basically this. You do not have to, Gentiles, you do not have to become Jewish proselytes. You don't have to be circumcised, and you don't have to observe all of the Mosaic law. But then there's this advice given by James and followed by the elders and apostles. But first of all, you must be holy, set apart to God. And then you also need to be considerate of others. When you can, be considerate of others with your rights and freedoms and preferences. So in verses 28 and 29, we see first that they're, they're convinced of the Holy Spirit's confirmation of the guidance that they are giving to the Gentile believers, which is to lay no greater burden on you. We're, we kind of have to have our heads in the context to be clear on the meaning of this no greater burden. They were being told by the others Uh, by some others, that unless they were circumcised, they could not be saved, chapter 15, verse 1. That they must must do that and and keep the law of Moses, chapter 15, verse 5. But the discussion among the leaders confirmed that the Gentiles were being saved by faith in Christ alone, and thereby they were receiving the Holy Spirit, just as we are, Peter confirms. The same was true for the Jews, Chapter 15, verse 11, we are all saved by, we are all saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, not by works of the law. And you remember me telling you that Paul wrote that, not by works of the law in Galatians, in this same time frame, maybe before this, but during this same time frame. But despite these Gentiles being free from the civil and ceremonial law of the Jews, they must be holy. And they must be considerate of their Jewish brothers and sisters. So the leaders instruct them to abstain from four things. The first thing that is mentioned deals with idolatry. Anything we place above a supreme worship of God and a supreme love for him is idolatry. I'm just going to say that again because you know that in this context, we're talking about specific images being worshipped as idols. But it, it, you need to, we need to understand for our context that anything we place above a supreme worship of God and a love for him is idolatry. But again, here we're talking about actual idols, images of supposed gods of man's own making. The point here, though, is to avoid eating any meat that they know has been associated with pagan idolatry. So not only would this be greatly offensive to Jews, But really, it's flirting with the line of being associated in some way with that idolatry. And they must flee from idolatry, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 14. Actually, if you go to 1 Corinthians 10, you'll see that the whole thing is basically about this topic in Paul's instruction in this part to the the Corinthian church. Paul says that, yes, food is just food. Idols are just objects, but we shouldn't knowingly associate with them. Situations may differ, Paul says, but in any case, we need to be careful to be holy and to protect the consciences 
of others. Again, you can review that in 1 Corinthians 10. Another way to prefer in our context, in this text that we're looking at, another way to prefer the sensibilities of Jews above their own dietary freedoms as Gentiles is to avoid eating or drinking blood and avoid eating meat with the blood still in it, which is what would have happened if they were, it was killed by strangulation. You're trying not to think too hard about exactly how this plays out. Um, but the, the main issue is, is Jews avoiding being ritually unclean because of what they were commanded by the law to not eat blood, drink blood, eat meat with the blood still in it. And so this is a concession. It's a concession from the Gentiles. You know what's interesting about this whole situation is that if you think about the, the perspective that Paul clearly has as he talks about these things, if you think about the perspective that maybe even James had, let's just say that James sort of was inclined to side with the Pharisaic Christians, and Paul is the, no, 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 Gentiles are saved only by Christ alone, they should be able to live in their freedoms, and yet the consensus that they come to sort of Nobody wins completely, <laughs> except that the gospel must be protected, and we must be holy, but we can make concessions for one another for the sake of their consciences. So Paul wants us... Um, or I should say, even the Apostle Paul is not against compromising on potential freedoms for the sake of the conscience of others in Christian community. We'll get to Acts chapter 16, verse 3, and see that he circumcises Timothy. Earlier, he did not circumcise Titus in Galatians. He does circumcise Timothy. So he chooses to do that for the sake of the people that they might be reaching out to. Not because they have to, but because they can and it'll be okay. <laughs> but he doesn't want to discourage and distract from being helpful with what counts the most, what is foundational truth. If we're unwilling to submit to the culture of a local church, it could actually be a roadblock, a roadblock to gospel witness and growth. Now, again, you can't compromise in a way that makes excuse for you or others to sin. But Paul teaches, which is also evidenced by the decision here, that where Christian conscience is the primary issue, we ought to be willing to compromise for the sake of others. In other words, we willingly limit our freedoms for the sake of our brethren. Finally, they're willing, uh, or finally, the, this the, the fourth instruction, they were to pursue holiness by abstaining from all sexual immorality. Colossians 3.5 uses that language, to abstain from all sexual immorality. The Gentile culture of the time was pr promiscuous and licentious, pretty much the mentality that everything goes in sexual expression and behavior. We said this last week, and we'll say it again. We can relate to this because our modern Western, Western culture is much the same. Everything goes. The instruction here is that Christians must be set apart to God and separate from these immoral practices. By living consistently within the bounds God has prescribed for sexual purity. What I always try to tell my children and other young people is that we must understand that God always has your good in his mind and in his heart. 
God never tells us to do something that isn't what is best. He can't do something else. He's always good. So you don't want to think of God as like he's just the biggest and strongest. It's not only that God has all the authority and the power and the strength, but it's also that God is good. That's the difference between being a tyrant and being a perfect sovereign. God always has your best interest at heart. We are blessed that God has told us, do this and not that. This is for your good. And so we discover that we submit to God and desire to be, to live in accordance with what he says, I have made you sexual beings, but live this way, live in such a way that is consistent with what I have told you to do, within the bounds of marriage between one man and one woman. Like idolatry, sexual impurity is not a situational issue only, but is according to God's moral law for all Christians of all cultures and all eras. One application for us is the necessity for purity and holiness. You can't, first of all, be holy before God without the grace of Christ to cleanse you from your sin and place you in the family of God. The Bible teaches us that we are not only um, depraved, that we're in our sin, but we're also unable to respond to God rightly. We're unable to achieve uh, being made right with God, and so he had to give Jesus as a mediator. The only way for us to be holy in the first place, to be in right standing with God, is by grace through faith in Christ. And after that, so we said, then God adopts you. He makes you his child. He gives you his indwelling Holy Spirit, not only to comfort and reassure you, but to help give you guidance and to, to guide your conscience so that you should desire the things of God. And as his children, we aim to live consistently as a beloved child of God. So let's say that my maturity in Christ and usefulness in ministry is, is a liquid. So how is that relationship to God and impact for his kingdom altered by the impurities of idolatry and sexual immorality? If my spiritual maturity is a liquid, how is it tainted by idolatry and sexual immorality? And so we strive to be in fellowship with God so that he can remove the impurities from our hearts and our lives to be useful to him as well. I ask you this morning, what do you need to confess to God and take more seriously as sin that breaks your fellowship with him and hurts how well you reflect him as his child? And then a second, a second application is being considerate of others, willingly forgoing our rights and freedoms and preferences. Honestly, most conflict, even among believers, boils down to these things rather than foundational matters upon which we cannot compromise. Let's follow the humble and selfless example of Jesus and prefer one another above ourselves, looking to the interests of others before our own. Philippians 2, 3 and 4. So this letter sent out demonstrates unity and clarity about the message, and it needs to be persuasive. They needed to make sure it hits the mark. 
So, they, so with this letter, they send along two trustworthy witnesses to confirm and clarify their written statement. And by clarify, I mean to explain a little more and to answer the questions that might arise. So who are these two envoys that confirm the message and, and then we also hear about how it's received from them in verses 30 to 35? Well, other than here in this text, we know nothing else of Judas called Barsabbas. We just hear that he's a leading man among the brothers, verse 22, and he's a New Testament prophet, verse 32. Silas, on the other hand, would soon become Paul's companion on his next missionary journey, Acts 15, verse 40. And he's mentioned in, in some other New Testament epistles by his longer, name, his longer Greek name, which is Silvanus. He even served as Peter's scribe for his first letter. We learn that in 1 Peter 5, 12. We know a little bit more about Silas. But as you think about Judas and Silas, you can imagine that for a task like this, these are trustworthy men, men of trusted character, men who are proven and consistent, men who will be honest but prudent, not saying more than they ought to say. And this is an important task. One quick application, pursue faithfulness over importance or influence. Pursue faithfulness over importance or influence. Who you are before God takes precedence over what particular thing you are doing. In fact, it should be character first that then gives guidance to how God might be pleased to use us. Remember first to belong to God and live for him and then let him direct how he will use you. So sure, these leaders would have likely considered whether or not these guys were a good fit for the task and whether they would make a good team to complement one another. But first, they had to be faithful men. Let's focus our energy on character before God and faithfulness in the little things. Again, the purpose of these two envoys is to confirm their spoken testimony with their spoken testimony what is written in the letter. And then, no doubt, to bring back news of how the message was received. They're going to go back and tell them this is how it went. They not only deliver the letter, reading it to the whole congregation according to verse 30, but then, with many words we hear, they make it their aim to encourage and strengthen the brothers. How they excel at this task they were designated for. To encourage the brothers and sisters would mean to give them inner comfort and reassurance and confidence. By grace through faith alone, you have received the Spirit. No other burden, my brothers and sisters. No other burden. You are in Christ Jesus. And to strengthen them would mean to give them further determination and resolve for continuation and perseverance. Because you are in Christ Jesus, you can live for him. Wouldn't it be amazing if we were known for this type of ministry amongst ourselves and reaching out to others? To be not only those willing to confront and challenge when it's appropriate, but to be people who excel at encouraging and strengthening one another and fellow believers. Offering on the spot to pray for someone, to pray with them right now. Can I pray with you now before we get off the phone? Can I pray with you now before we split up? And bringing the truth of, truth of the Bible into the conversation with specific texts as much as possible. Aren't you glad that now, for as much as I hate 
the internet because of how easy it is to access inappropriate things. I love the internet because I'll remember some phrase from God's word and I'll say, hey, Google, and I'll quote the Bible and Google will show me the passage and then I'll pull up the passage and I'll show it to someone. I wish that I were John Bunyan and I didn't have to do that. Like, he just bled the Bible. After all, with what we believe about the power and the effectiveness of God's word, what could encourage or strengthen us more than the very promises and counsel of God himself? Now, notice, too, that the message they deliver is received with rejoicing. <laughs> yes! Thank goodness! I am so relieved. Because of its encouragement, its comfort, its consolation in verse 31. That means it's met with great relief in spite of the recommendations to be considerate of the Jews' dietary restrictions. They're not complaining about that. They're rejoicing. What a small concession to make compared to having confirmed that they are in Christ without any further works of their own. And what a minor accommodation to be, to be sensitive to the Jews. What a minor accommodation that is compared to the value of, of unity and fellowship with Christ's people. So now Silas and Barsabbas or Judas can go back with the word of how the letter blessed the brothers and sisters in Antioch. The whole scene ends with a note of, of joy and peace, as well as ministry continuing on as it had before. Paul and Barnabas keep teaching, only now with even greater confirmation and solidarity with Christ's church. And now before we close our, our conversation about this, this section of, of Acts 15, I'm just going to try to take a few minutes to describe some overarching implications for us. I'll go back even to the earlier parts just to say that defending Christian biblical truth is necessary. It is necessary. Truth matters. And the most important truth in all the world is the existence, character, and the will of God. Everything else finds its place in relationship to God and his activity. Everything else finds its place in relationship to God and his activity. This is therefore especially true for understanding our own human existence and what it means to be in right relationship to God. So while we are right to be sensitive to the Spirit's leading, we must not view the Spirit and the Scripture as having competing voices. Hear me again, I kind of shifted there without much warning. Under the same heading of defending biblical truth, I want you to notice from this text especially we're right to be sensitive to the Spirit's leading, but we must not view the Spirit and the Scripture as having competing voices. So far in all of Acts, we have discovered the apostles and the elders demonstrating that the things that are happening are consistent with the prophecy of God foretold in the Scriptures. They know that it is essential to demonstrate that the spiritual activity taking place, Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus, is consistent with, with what God foretold. There are, in fact, competing spirits in the world, and there is an enemy who deliberately gets close to the truth and twists it. We therefore need the true spirit to guide us in our understanding of Scripture, 
to guard us from falsehoods that will run afoul of this same scripture. After all, whose book is this? Who superintended the authors? Who is the author of this book breathed out by God? The Holy Spirit is literally the breath of God. In this situation, which is described as the Holy Spirit's leading, is the unified confirmation of spirit-filled men concluding what is consistent with the Hebrew scriptures and the teaching of Jesus. So to us, that would be the Old and New Testament scriptures. Do you catch what I'm saying? When the Holy Spirit is mentioned in verse 28, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. We now hear that this is approved by the Holy Spirit. How did that take place in this context? The, the men of God, filled with the Spirit of God, worked on this together and reached a consensus that they believed was consistent with the Scriptures and therefore consistent with the Spirit of God. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to tell you this. So we submit to the Word of God. Secondly, I'll tell you, in defending truth, it matters a great deal how we posture ourselves and how we treat others. The main reason for this is that God knows our hearts and God tests our hearts. And we should, we, we should well be concerned with whether or not we are living like Jesus and becoming more like him. We should notice here that these leaders listened well and they gave people a fair hearing. If you back up a little bit, you'll, you'll discover that they listened to the debate before Peter spoke up. So that's why I told you those were conclusive arguments from Peter and James. There was a whole lot of other conversation going on. The leaders listened well. They gave them a fair hearing. They didn't put others down in their responses. They didn't attack people, but the issue. And they made careful efforts to be clear in their answer. They were honest without being mean-spirited. They were clear without rehashing every detail in the debate. And notice how the people listened to and respected the voices of those among them who had a proven record of character and consistency in their close walk with Jesus. In our culture, even Christian culture, we get really excited about the new young preachers and, you know, almost like there's a celebrity culture even amongst us. And I'm only in my early 40s, and I still usually say, hang on, let's just wait. <laughs> Let's just wait and see. But we're also richly blessed in the church, even in the modern church, to have voices that are coming from people of proven and consistent character over a period of 40 or 50 years without some kind of salacious drama. We do well to listen to them. And we have that same thing. Notice, hey, just look around. Remember I said last week, I thought I was so cute with my comment about under a hood of gray hairs lies an engine that throttles with a heart for God. Look around the room and notice people who have that silver cap and have been living for Christ for a long time. We do well to listen. And notice how these people then submitted to that decision. And I basically just have to throw this last one at the wall because I'm out of time. 
not all theological or even methodological differences are of equal weight. While the concept is rather straightforward, perhaps even obvious, it's less simple as we put it into practice, how we interact over our differences in terms of how we fellowship and cooperate with one another in ministry. So I would suggest the following as a potentially helpful way to think about these things. And this is far from unique to me. You can throw up the picture for me, Jonathan. This is just an image of concentric circles, and it has four rings. In the center, I would call this foundational truth. The gospel, the triune Godhead, the holy scriptures, the depravity and inability of man, things that are foundational to the gospel and to God's word. In the, in the centuries that followed, there were various crucial councils that gathered to guard against false teaching, the full deity of Jesus, the true humanity of Jesus, the personhood and deity of the Holy Spirit, the triunity of God. They would work hard to carefully articulate any area of doctrine, sound teaching that is consistent with God's word and guarded against errant teaching. And then the second category, you might call truths that are urgent for our situation and our practice. Truths that are urgent for our situation and our practice. Just to give you one example, in the, in the culture in which we live, as we spoke about earlier, there is so much confusion over what is best for humans in terms of gender and sexuality. And so it becomes urgent that the church knows where we stand and how we love well according to the truth of God. And then a third category you might call aspects of doctrine that are still important, still important, but more peripheral and perhaps less clear. Aspects of doctrine that are still important but more peripheral and less clear. And then a fourth category would be Christian conscience and conviction. What tends to make all of this so tricky for us is that some of us are maximalists. Every conviction is a dogma. We move toward the center. (laughs) While others of us are minimalists, very little dogma, we tend to push things toward the outside. And we need to balance that so that we're clear where scripture is clear. And to be fair, that's on a lot of things. And we're nuanced and selfless where there's reasonable room for disagreement. Whether that be a conviction of conscience or maybe even differing interpretations on difficult and disputed portions of Scripture. So you can take this last concept and use it if it's helpful to you. You can ask me more questions and feel free to fight with me about it later if you want. Um, But I trust that what we're seeing from this experience in Acts chapter 15 is that it really does matter, doesn't it, that we defend gospel truth But it also matters how we behave like Jesus. And so sometimes we have to be people of balance, right? The way that these elders and apostles behave and communicate. Let's pray and we'll have the praise team come again. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your truth. God, I pray that your people gathered here today will be good Bereans and that they will look carefully into this text and compare scripture with scripture to see if the the way that I've emphasized things today is what you would have them to accept and to live by. And God, I pray that if this is consistent, that we would let it change us and shape how we live, 
the way that we behave and interact with one another, and even those who are not among us. And Father God, I pray for the conviction of your Holy Spirit for anyone who remains outside of Christ, who doesn't have a personal relationship with you. Father God, cause them to repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Maybe we could conclude this morning with what a privilege it is to have the very word of God at our fingertips. Don't think of reading it as like something you must do to check off a list to be a good Christian. Now you come to his word to know God. What a privilege it is. Would you allow me to pray for us, brothers and sisters, as we close for God to encourage and strengthen us as we go out from here to be his people? Our gracious Heavenly Father, all things are from you and for you, the triune God of the Holy Scriptures. We thank you that you have given us your word so that we may see you rightly, see ourselves rightly, that we may see and, and understand who Jesus is and come to faith in him, and that, that you give us so much instruction to know how to love you better and fear you more, and trust you more, and be more dependent on you to abide in our Savior so that we can live like your faithful children. Strengthen and encourage us to do so this week. In Christ's name, amen.